listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to compare Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan. I'm here once again with Skylar. Skylar. What you been up to, Skylar? What was the highlight of your week this week? This week? Oh, man. Well, I met Jared Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Where? That was interesting. So I went to a debate at the University of Utah. The debate question being, is God essential for ethics or something like that? Is he necessary for right. ethics? Yep. How was the debate? Um, good. I mean, I, I think in the room, there's a dynamic that won't translate to the video whenever they post it. Right. But I do hope the audio is a little better. Yeah. So some people we could hear better than others. Um, but Jared Anderson was, of course, in the negative, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And then um, Jeff Durbin, James White were in the affirmative. Yeah. And then there was a, a guy who's a scholar in international law and other things, pretty impressive resume, but he was the hardest to hear. So I, I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah. Did Jared, did he identify himself as an agnostic? Yes. That, a dev, devout agnostic. Okay. If I remember correctly. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. If you don't know, we've been interacting with, some of Jared Anderson's uh, podcast, um, he maybe is still a member of the Church of Jesus Christ yeah, of Latter-day I don't Saints. Know. I don't know, but uh, he certainly was the representative of a very, very liberal and progressive mm-hmm. uh, way of trying to approach LDS doctrine and actually had walked through the Come Follow Me curriculum in a podcast, I don't know, like four years ago, I guess, because it's on mm-hmm. a four-year rotation. And apparently now at this point, just... <laughs> Maybe just didn't fiddle in with that stuff at all. Maybe, so, yeah. yeah. I I did get the sense from whenever he spoke positively, it sounded just like the podcast. So, yeah. I mean... It's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if, if you have that view of mm. theology. I'm not sure you have to change much. It's to true. Be, yeah. It's true. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but as soon as I heard just, him speak, I just wonder if he still is, because at the time of the podcast, he was even helping to teach the curriculum yeah. in his local ward everything so yeah anyways it's like can you be an agnostic and still be teaching sunday school in an lds ward well yes i and i would say yeah yeah in a sense i mean <laughs> it has other issues but i think in terms of their theology proper their view of god i um it makes sense to me yeah pretty interesting yeah who do you think i mean won the debate of course, I'm going to be partial to the Christian side, so no yep. surprise there. But um, I, have, I have things I liked about both sides and criticisms of both sides. But mm-hmm. honestly, the interaction between Jeff Durbin and Jared Anderson in the uh, cross-examination, I think, settled the debate on the Christian side. I just think um, there, there was a lot of talking past each other in the opening statements. But once Jeff got him to really own the position, um, I think people saw, okay. You, Just you in, need a, in a practical sense. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, Jeff, Jeff said, Jared, is pedophilia ultimately wrong? Right. And he said, no. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, the- <laughs> because if hypothetically, if yeah. enough people in a social group decide that decide it's okay, that it, yeah, then, then, it, morally, then it, must be. it must be okay. Because if the only standard you can have is whatever is accepted by the majority. Yep. Uh, you really don't have any set mm-hmm. truth of what is right or wrong. Right. It's just 
determined by the majority. Mm-hmm. Which means when you study like, uh, you know, Greco-Roman history and you see that it was accepted by the majority that, uh, that teachers and philosophers could take young boys who were their students and molest them all they wanted as somehow part of the process of training them up, that's okay. Yep. Um, man, just wicked. Yep. Truly. Mm-hmm. To uh, to think think that way. So cool. Well, glad you got to go to that. Yeah. What about you? I never get to go to those debates. It's just not the season of life for me. Right. Five five kids at home. So <laughs> exactly. Um. Yeah, man. What have I been up to this week? Uh, just busy, like busy with ministry stuff. So we're we're prepping for. Uh, we have our our uh, Good Friday service at uh, First Baptist Provo this week, tomorrow, actually. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. We're actually going to do a more traditional Tenebrae service this year. So uh, if listeners aren't familiar, Tenebrae services are, you know, really rooted in in church history. Uh, You know, I think they started being practiced in like, I don't know, 12th, 13th century something like that. Um, And then it was carried on even in the reformed tradition for a good while. And then just kind of fell out of practice from a lot of Protestant groups. Um, But it's been kind of making a comeback in recent years. More Protestant groups are doing the Tenebrae service now, but a a Tenebrae service is a service of shadows. So it's a intentional uh, service that is meant to cause you to mourn sin and death and uh, particularly to, grieve over the death of Jesus as we consider the weight of of our belief that he uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And uh, yeah, so uh, the service is supposed to take place as much as you can dark in a room. We, we have these huge windows in our auditorium, so we'll see. We'll see how dark it actually is, but uh, you, you, you light um, however many candles uh, as correlates with the number of scripture readings you're going to do and just kind of read these scriptures that cause you to reflect on the various uh, shadows of, of the, of the crucifixion. So, you know, sh- like there, there's like the shadow of accusation and the, the shadow of, of death, you know, and these different shadows and you read these passages of scripture and extinguish a flame after each reading until you end up with only the middle central uh, candle lit, which is the Christ candle. And then you, Distinguish that at the very end, and supposed to just kind of be in a dark room in silence for for a, a bit as a group, and then uh, traditionally you leave the Tenebrae service in silence. So we're planning to do that tomorrow, where we just uh, really leave mourning the death of Jesus, and uh, you know the the effect it ought to have on us. Um, you know, even emotionally, mentally, everything ought to be to cause us to reflect on the weight of sin, the death of Jesus all day Saturday. And then uh, and then Easter morning, we really celebrate that he is risen. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that That's tomorrow. That's beautiful. Can we do a quick point of comparison? Sure. I don't know if anybody else saw on the official LDS email. Yeah. It goes out every week. Oh, wow. I don't get and that. And they did one for Holy Week, right? Yeah. Guess what the subject line was? For Easter. Um, families forever. You would think, right? <laughs> Rise above your challenges. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. A little different. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, the resurrection, I guess, is a metaphor of you rising above your That's challenges. Right. You can do it. <laughs> what challenge are you going to rise above this week? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Dealing with that email. That's oh, the one oof. I got to. <laughs> oof. Yeah. All right. So yeah, it's 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 a good week. I really I really enjoy the church calendar and um, value kind of taking different times of the year to focus in a special way on uh, particular things. We're not I mean we're not super strict. We don't right. like I, I haven't ever really even unlent myself, you know, or mm. things like that. But who knows? You know, yeah. we'll see. We'll yeah. see. All right. Well, let's get into this. Um, so we are looking at the curriculum for April 10th to the 16th in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Come Follow Me curriculum. Uh, again, if you're listening for the first time, by chance, you're listening to two creedal Christians, also known as you know evangelical Christians, Protestants, whatever you want to call us, born-agains, I don't know. Reformed. We're, yeah, well, that's even more narrow, but yes. Um <laughs> But uh, we're interacting with the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum and are just using this really as a, as a way of comparing the two different belief systems and ways of thinking. And, uh, man, just as we've been walking through this, I think that drawing out these distinctions has made just how different these two religions really are come to the surface uh, very clearly, I hope, for all of our listeners. And that's a big part of the intention, right, because... Uh, we both live in Utah, uh, Provo, Orem, Utah, of all places, uh, really like the hub of LDS thought with uh, BYU being here and everything. But uh, we uh, run into people all the time who, like the, the common street, you know, thought for LDS people right now is we're the same. And, uh, and so we're just doing this podcast so that anybody who listens to this realizes wow, these are really two totally different worldviews, two totally different religions and belief systems. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. The LDS uh, church or faith is walking through the New Testament this year. And so in the text we're looking at today, we're looking at Matthew 15 to 17 and Mark 7 and 9. And really we're interacting specifically in depth with the Sunday school material. So they're covering these passages in lots of different areas uh, in their seminary classes, which are their kind of school, school age kids go to these classes after or during school each day to learn this material. Uh, and then they're also, they have the individual and family manual where they study it on their own time. But uh, we're interacting specifically with what they're doing in the Sunday school. And this week, the uh, bulk of everything is in Matthew 16. So we're going to be looking primarily at Matthew 16 together, verses 13 to 20. And uh, so getting into the material here, the uh, the subtitle of this section is Thou Art the Christ. And uh, we get just right into Matthew 16, 13 to 17. And, of course, that is this is the famous passage of Peter confessing Jesus is the Christ. And it probably would be mo- more appropriate to kick us off here. Uh, man, I sh- we didn't get a creed or confession again. We keep forgetting to do that. Yeah. Um, but it probably would be most appropriate to kick us off, off here just reading the actual text. And then we'll look at uh, just real quickly how the LDS uh, Sunday School curriculum wants to outline this. So this is, uh, this is Matthew 
or Matthew uh, 16, verses 13 to 20 from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Such an important question, isn't it? The most important question. I think it's so fascinating because we we all often will tell people who are around here, LDS people, we don't worship the same Jesus. And they'll often say, well, I don't understand what, what Jesus do you worship. I worship Jesus of Nazareth. Clearly, Jesus isn't asking his disciples here, what do you know about my worldly historical past? Who, who am I? They knew he was Jesus of Nazareth. And the nature of this conversation clearly shows us that the question that's most important for us to answer is not what are these kind of historical facts about where Jesus came from in an earthly sense. The most important questions we can ask are metaphysical. Yep. <laughs> you know, who is Jesus in his being? Who is Jesus in his nature? Who is Jesus, not not only in his humanity, it's not that we're discounting the importance of that, but who is he beyond that? Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. Everything hinges on how you answer that question. Everything hinges on answering that question rightly. So when evangelical Christians or creative Christians say, we don't worship the same Jesus as an LDS person does, it's because we don't at right. all. Right. Uh, we would answer that question vastly differently. I mean, huge difference on what we would say there. Simon Peter replied, this is verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So that's God's word. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, here is the first subsection of the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. It is titled, A Testimony of Jesus Christ Comes by Revelation. Okay, we've talked about Revelation quite a bit because this is essential to a LDS understanding to uh, to articulate this need for revelation over and over and over again. And the curriculum in particular uh, turns the, the people's attention to personal revelation. So in kind of the second subsection, it says, there may be people in your class who are praying for personal revelation, but do not know how to recognize it when it comes. And then it turns them over to this website, Hear Him, and we went and watched some of these videos, and these videos are basically the apostles and prophet of the church talking about how they recognize the Lord's vo- voice. Here's how I hear Him. And of course, it's always in this story format, and you know, sometimes it's like there's this one moment that this happened, and it's all about these impressions and things like that. And so it's it's so interesting how you know when they're thinking about Revelation, they're not thinking primarily and fundamentally about Jesus and his, his revelation of himself. They're thinking about how they're going to experience the voice of God in their own life now. And it really isn't primarily rooted in what God's Word objectively says, what the Bible objectively says. It is, it's, it's these different stories of 
you know, some say through prayer, some say through other people, some say through, some say would say through uh, reading the scriptures, but it still isn't a, a deep studying of the scriptures. It's just kind of a, you know, what am I get? What is this mystical sort of thing I'm going to get out of it today? Um, any comments on that, Skylar? There, yeah, probably too many. Yeah. But I mean, you can see that just in the last section, or sorry, the last part of this section where the question is, what other teachings or scriptures can your class think of that would help someone recognize personal revelation? And then it uses scriptures, of course, some fake, uh, Book of Mormon and DNC, but then two from actual scripture. But, but notice, that's not the revelation. Yeah, Those are the means by which someone receives their Gnostic revelation. Yep, that's right. <laughs> or teach them principles to apply to receive this divine inner knowing yeah. by which they become committed to the LDS church. Yep. And of course, that's coming off of verse 15, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, verse 17, where Jesus... Uh, so, G- so Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and not only the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God. So yep. it's not even that uh, Peter is keeping it in this Jewish messianic understanding. He's starting to understand the bigger picture even, because most Jews, really all Jews, would have expected the Messiah to just be an earthly king. They wouldn't have thought of him as divine. Uh, they weren't expecting the Messiah to be divine, and yet here is Peter realizing you are the son of the living God. Um, and that's significant because, of course, Jesus refers to him as the son of Bar-Jonah, right? And so there is this distinction being made by Jesus to Peter, saying, you recognize that your father is this earthly father, right, Bar-Jonah, you, and you know that my father is not of this world, mm-hmm. but is the heavenly father. And if, it's, a, it's a statement of divinity. It's a statement of distinction. Peter, you and I are not the same, right. fundamentally. And yeah. if he is the eternal God, the transcendent creator, and Jesus is his son, and this God doesn't change, then that relationship is an eternal one as well. Yeah. It's not begotten in time. That's right. It's an eternal begetting because of the nature of who God is as revealed in the real scriptures, say, the Old Testament. Yep, yep, absolutely. So that is then the revelation that Peter receives. It, it, it pertains to the nature of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, he answers, And blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what's important here is not that Peter is receiving some Gnostic secret knowledge, it's that he's starting to understand the nature of who Christ is. That's what the revelation is. Revelation, the, the revelation of God ultimately is Jesus himself. Yeah. He, he is God in flesh. He comes into the world. He reveals who God is. Uh, when you look at Jesus, you see God. Yeah. And so all of the Old Testament is revelation that's leading up to the revelation of God, which is Jesus. It's all anticipating his coming. And then all of our New Testament is articulating the revelation of God, which was, here is who Jesus is. So it's all Christ-centered. So what needs to be revealed to Peter is not, you know, which direction do I need to take in my life tomorrow? You know, which job am I supposed to take? Am I supposed to move to this city or that city? I need personal revelation in order to know how to lead my life and my family well. That's not at all what the purpose of revelation is. The purpose of revelation is that you would know the nature of who Jesus is. That's what it is all bound up in. And the Jesus outside of Peter. That's right. Outside of us. 
Yep. Not Santa Jesus in my heart. Yep. Based on a feeling and an experience, but an objective reality apart from us that doesn't rely on whether we believe it. Yep. That yep. doesn't change based on our feelings about it. That's right. And I mean, this is interesting too. We set this up with the Beatitudes, right? But this blessed yeah. is the same word That's as right. blessed. Blessed and, are you, Simon Barjona. And uh, in this seminary manual, they say G, uh, Peter is blessed because of his testimony. That's right. No, 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 no. We covered this. This is a divine passive. Yep. He received this blessedness. And you see this already in Matthew 11, another verse we covered, because only the Father knows the Son. Yeah. And so if we have any knowledge of the Son... It's revealed by the Father. Mm-hmm. And so the Spirit right. draws us to the Son by the Father, right? So yeah. it's the so entire... So how does Peter know who Jesus is? It's because of the blessing. Yep. The blessing of the Father revealing it. That's right. It's a gift. It's not from his faith. It's mm-hmm. not from his work. It's not from his effort. His uh, experience. Not from his experience. His testimony. That's right. His feelings. Yeah. Impressions. That's right. God, God gets the glory. Yep that Peter is starting to understand who Christ truly is. And by the way, friends, if I could just say, um, every true Christian will make that claim. Absolutely. I only know that Jesus is the Son of God, truly, the the one and only Son of God, not begotten, uh, or not not made, um, but eternally begotten of the Father. Um, the, The only way that you come to confess that about Christ is by... The, the grace of God the Father revealing Christ to you. Um, and so if you don't believe that right now, you need the grace of God. Um, otherwise, you're cut off from grace because you don't know and you're not worshiping the true Christ as Peter came to understand who he is by God's grace. Okay, so, um, yeah, so that, that's what we get in the first section, uh, that the apparently a testimony of Jesus Christ comes by way of revelation, and you need to strengthen your own testimony. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the LDS way of thinking. Yep. Okay, now moving on to the next subsection, and this is where we'll spend the majority of the time. <clears throat> the title of this one, and this is the same passage of Scripture that they're covering, is Priesthood Keys Are Essential to Our Salvation. Priesthood Keys are not optional. They're not, you know, somewhat important, but, you know, no, no. Priesthood Keys Are Essential to Our Salvation. Now, let me just read from this. To start a discussion about priesthood keys, you could write references like these on the board. And then it gives a number of references. Most of them are from the Doctrine and Covenants and Joseph Smith's history. Uh, and then the keys to the pre, or the keys of the priesthood and the uh, guide to the scriptures, which is on the, the LDS Church's website. And then uh, they're supposed to read and interact and talk about what we learn from these different references about the priesthood keys. And the question asks is, why do we need priesthood keys? And then the next section um, within, within the same subheading says, to help class members strengthen their testimonies. So here we go again, strengthen your testimony of the restoration of priesthood keys in the latter days. You could ask half of the class to study Matthew 17, 1 to 9, and the other half to study Doctrine and Covenants 110. They, they could then share with each other what they learned and note similarities between the two accounts. And then it says, go watch the video of the priesthood keys, the restoration of the priesthood keys. All right, we have worked around this idea of the priesthood a good bit and this idea of priesthood keys and things like that, but we're going we're gonna to kind of take it head on. 
Uh, and so, Scott, I'm going to turn it over to you for that to explain to us what uh, the LDS understanding of the priesthood is, what they would understand these priesthood keys to be, and then we'll work through um, evangelical or creed of Christian interpretation of uh, and a, a uh, creed of Christian interpretation of this passage. So, take it away. Okay, well, uh, yeah, a lot here, and I, I do think going through this manual has helped me see, really, this is their, this is their center theologically. Yeah. Um, it, the priesthood creates the church. The priesthood is the authority by which any man does anything God wants so it's done. So like for us, the center done. is the gospel. Yeah. The, the proclamation of what Christ has done. For yeah. them, the center is the priesthood. Right, where, you know, it's the triune God is revealed in Christ, clothed in the gospel. It's the Godhead, three separate persons, beings, mm-hmm. as, um, I guess helped along in terms of revealing secret knowledge, according to Holland, um, by Jesus, um, clothed in the priesthood, in the priesthood keys, I guess would be the the way they do it. So um, really quickly, and this is a combination of the seminary manual um, and this talk by Gary Stevenson, where are the keys and the authority of the priesthood. They all basically will say the keys are the rights of presidency or the power given to man by God to direct, control, and govern God's priesthood on earth. So, well, what's the priesthood? The power and authority of God. So, priesthood is the power and authority of God. The keys are the authority God has given to certain leaders to direct, control, and govern the use of the priesthood on the earth. So, and where you see this emphasized in everything they have are in ordinances, um, both outside the temple and in the temple for the living and the dead, or how they'll put it, is both sides of the veil. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the priesthood power and aren't operating under the direction of the one who has keys or those who have keys, then it's not recognized in heaven. Yeah. So that's, that's it. And they want to tie this to a restoration of the priesthood um, that was lost. So they want to say Peter received the sealing power, um, and that was lost. Mm-hmm. And that's what had to be restored. And, and isn't it a little ironic they're using this passage yeah. to talk about something that needed to be restored. Oh, since, it's very, very ironic. Yeah, since literally the next verse says... <laughs> verse 18. Yeah, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail. Yeah, well, well, it, yeah, and Jesus himself saying, I will build my church. Yep. I will build my church, mm-hmm. and the gates of hell will not. So you've got the positive and the negative there. Yep. Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right, and what's a gate trying to do? So it, it, the church is on the offensive, not in the defensive. Yeah. The idea is not even the gates of hell will be able to withstand the, the church. Yep. And also talk about testimony and knowledge. In uh, Matthew 24, 14, the, the testimony is the gospel of mm-hmm. the kingdom. It's, yep. not, it's not the apostles' experiences and feelings. It's the gospel. Yep. So they use this. Uh, so it's so funny. They, in fact, I looked at literally everything on this, right? Not one mention, not even an attempt to refute that second verse. 
they'll use everything around it to say Peter received keys yeah. to sealing power that they associate with their temples yeah. as if early Christians built temples. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, keep, you, keep going. No, Finish your and, and yet, um, skip the, the purpose of the keys as Jesus articulates it in this very passage. Yeah. I, I would just also note, uh, especially if we have any evangelical Christian listeners who are wondering why we're touching on this, one of the core claims of the LDS Church is that there was a great apostasy that happened essentially, I mean, very soon after the apostles died off. I mean, I think, you know, they would say a little later than that based on some of the testimony of the Book of Mormon. Do you say that's probably right, mm-hmm. Skyler? Um, but they, they, they will say that the gates of hell, they have to say the gates of hell did prevail against the church. So yep. Jesus was just wrong here. Yep. Uh, Jesus, Jesus lied because the church was extinguished. Um, entirely, and and so Joseph Smith's entire claim is that he is coming to restore the uh, restore the church, and I I just have to say it is one of the most uh, just ignorant, um, false beliefs about the history of the church that you could possibly muster. I mean that 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 sort of a claim could only come from somebody who had never re- read a lick of church history in their entire lives, because the more that you study church history, the more that you see that, that the gates of hell have never at any no. moment of time prevailed against the church. Never. And so the, the credo Christian claim, uh, even for those who are reformed, is that God's church has prevailed through all the centuries. Yep. Um, and so in every era, you can find gospel preaching Christians who are holding fast to the truth of the gospel, right. who are articulating rightly the nature and the person and the work of Christ. And, uh, and that never went away. No. We believe that the Reformation was a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. upon many people to, uh, to increase the, uh, the size of those or the number of those who are believing and holding fast to the truth of the gospel. But that's not because it had been snuffed out and needed to be recovered. Um, it's, just, it's just because there was a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit because God's Word was unleashed upon Europe and uh, it started transforming people's lives by the, by its power, the gospel, right. the power of the gospel. So that's why we emphasize reform, not revolution. Right? Reform yeah. was needed to clarify certain doctrines yep. that were kind of decaying as the natural fallen human heart started to put. That's right. More emphasis so on man. The reformed yeah. position is that the Roman Catholic Church was filled with true believers. Yes. Who were trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church sure. because they realized that the institution as a whole and those who had the the most power had turned away from the gospel had abandoned it and so uh i mean that was that was the goal of not people even before martin luther that you can trace um you know luther even got accused accused of being a hussian Mm -hmm. uh and luther didn't know who who uh john huss was at the time and so he said well i don't know if i am and then he started reading huss later and he's like oh yeah i guess i am one of these guys you know so it's not like Luther was the first one who just discovered no. these truths. There were other people in the Roman Catholic Church who were rightly articulating the gospel and groups of, of people who were holding fast to the faith mm-hmm. once we're all delivered to the saints. Right. And we even have a Council of Orange that says, uh, those who say, right, they um, come to God by the saying of a prayer. When it's the Spirit of God that leads men to pray, let him yeah. be anathema. There's the gospel. Yep. And that's that's some, some other yeah. churches today need to hear that. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so they, 
where we see the scripture as the revelation that creates the church and reforms the church. That's right. They see priesthood power as definitive of where the true church is. And that's, that's you know, they're going to lean into that. I yeah. mean, they're, they're going to say, it doesn't matter what past prophets taught. They're going to, you know, once again, perpetual revolution, but they're going to say, but we are the only ones with the proper authority to do yeah. anything that matters in heaven and earth. Yeah. And let's be clear, the, the purpose of that scripture is to articulate who Christ is. I mean, it's, it's all about Jesus, right? Right. Yeah. And what he's going to do. Yep. So, yeah, and we, we covered some of the issues with this restoration narrative, even on its own terms. You know, the more we look into Christian history, what you just said, the more you look into Mormon history, the more problems you see. Yeah. So, you know, even this uh, idea of John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John restoring the priesthood, um, these these aren't in the original Book of Commandments in 1833, right? The first edition of the DNC didn't have these stories, um, much less restoration, right? So um, we have even David Whitmer, Mel- Willie McClellan saying things like, uh, Willie McClellan being one of the original 12 apostles of the restored church, saying, you know, in 1831, I heard Joseph tell his experience many times about angels' visits and about finding the plates and their contents coming to light, but I never heard one word of John the Baptist or Peter, James, and John's visit and ordination till, till I was told some years afterward in Ohio. So once again, that it's even on its own terms, it's really iffy. But okay, let's, let's put that to the side and say, well, what are they claiming? What are they claiming was restored? Well, they're going to say... And Talmadge does this as well. In, of course, the parallel being the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. So they want to say Peter got keys here, but the Mount of Transfiguration. Explain, explain that passage just very quickly for yeah, so to freshen it, people's memory. Yeah, Peter, James, and John go up the Mount. It's debated which one. There's three options, but probably Mount Hermon. Um, and receive a vision of the glory of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it terrifies them. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of theology in there. Hopefully we have time to come back to it. But, uh, of course, they make it as all four were (laughs) transfigured by taking a particular meaning. This isn't just Jesus being transfigured and then being blown away by getting to see, at least in part, his unveiled glory. No, no, no. This is all of them being struck up into glory. And so that's why they have the in the curriculum, they say compare Matthew 17, because that's where you get that, the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1 to 9. They say, compare that to Doctrine and Covenants 110. Yep. And uh, the interpreter does this as well, where they're emphasizing, well, there's look, there's a mountain, so that's temple. And look, keys, even though it doesn't talk about keys in that passage. Mm-hmm. That's why they're tying it to this one. <laughs> um, and of course, is it the biblical understanding of keys, what it means? No, in context, no. Um, so, they, they tie it to the Mount of Transfiguration, which, since we're just on it, this is their definition of transfiguration. The conditions of persons who are temporarily changed in appearance and nature that is lifted to a higher spiritual level so that they can endure the presence and glory of heavenly beings. Of course, who's the heavenly being? <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and then they say this, Joseph Smith taught on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were also transfigured. Yeah. So changed both in what? Appearance and nature, and then supposedly they're receiving the keys. I mean, very different, uh, very different. So what are these keys? Well, they're going to say, 
that Moses gave them the keys of the gathering of Israel in the Kirtland Temple, April 3rd, 1836. Okay, so that's, that's where they claim this is pointing. And Talmud even says the coming of these prophets wasn't ultimately fulfilled till then, which is interesting. So the, um, that's Moses, the keys of the gathering of Israel. Then Elias, which we've covered multiple times, and they'll just keep saying, I'm the interpreter, it's not an issue. It's an issue. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely an issue. If Elias and Elijah both appeared to Joseph Smith at the same day, and in the New Testament it's the same person, yeah. but Joseph Smith is saying they're two different people, yeah. that's a big deal. Contradicting the scripture Ex- again. Exactly. And, yeah. of course, they have no evidence for Elias. They're gonna, they will literally have an hour recently talking gibberish about some weird Noachic tradition to try mm-hmm. to try to find somewhere it is. But even the sources on there uh, are just self-referential. Mm-hmm. So, but apparently Elias is the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. Okay. And then Elijah, keys of the sealing power. So Elijah, can, in their mind, has this meaning associated with temple sealings, families being sealed together. And that's how they interpret the turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. So apparently, through this amalgamation of words, as they interpret them, they're going to make the Mount of Transfiguration about the first presidency, even though it's not 15, there's 12, yeah. receiving keys, not just from Jesus, but from Moses and Elijah. And, and of course, Joseph Smith changed Mark 9 uh, version of it to... Um, John the Baptist was there, which is weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, weird. Uh, receiving keys. Even though Jesus is right there, they have to receive keys from these other guys. Yeah. Because once again, Heavenly Father's a different being in person than Jesus. So mm-hmm. you have two different gods there and then these uh, prophets. And because of the mountain, that means that they have these keys to seal families like LDS do in the temple. And that's what was lost in the great apostasy. Yeah. It, I'm, yeah. So. Have you ever lost your keys before, Skylar? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, <my God>. oh. <laughs> uh, it's so painful. <laughs> this, uh, I, you know, and it's so funny. With all the commentators uh, and the debates on tenses of verbs and all that, None of them debate what Jesus meant on terms of the church staying. Yeah. That is very clear. Very clear. Mm-hmm. And we see that in, in Revelation one eighteen as well. Yeah. Here's, here's something that's interesting from their gospel principles manual that may also try to help get people into the, uh, to understand the LDS position. And hopefully in us talking about it, any LDS that are listening better understand our position just based on how we're talking about it. Right. Yeah. So, this is, why do we need the priesthood on the earth? Uh, we must have priesthood authority to act in the name of God when performing the sacred ordinances of the gospel. Once again, gospels, laws, and ordinances, and principles, and truths. Such as baptism, confirmation, administration of the sacrament, and temple marriage. Right here. If a man does not have the priesthood, even though he may be sincere, the Lord will not recognize ordinances he performs. Mm-hmm. These important ordinances must be formed on the earth by men holding the priesthood. So it really is a power. Yeah. Priesthood is a power. It's, that's very different than, for example, even 
Rome where the emphasis is who's doing the ordinance. Right. Even, even with uh, parts of Christianity we disagree with in many ways. Who's doing the ordinance even in their view? It's not the person doing it. It's the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that's mm-hmm. doing it. But notice, the Lord won't recognize what we do in the LDS perspective. Whereas for us, it's recognizing what God has done. So even our differences in baptism, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, not a difference in who, which person, what man in this world has authority, right? Yeah. It's yeah. a difference in recognizing whether God has done something yep. in the life of that person. Yeah. Pretty yeah. different. Yeah, definitely. So, anyway, I <laughs> is there somewhere else you were thinking to focus on? I'm not sure I did. No, I, I think everything that's. There. I think I think that's good. You just hear about you hear about the priesthood all the time. Um, maybe it could be helpful if you could clarify who, like, who gets to hold the priesthood within the LDS Church. Yeah, and I, I hope that hasn't changed. It seems like things can change all the time now, but. Um, so you hit an age of accountability at age eight, mm-hmm. and that's when LDS are typically baptized. Once again, uh, very specific rote way, or it's not valid. Mm-hmm. And then typically you enter the Aaronic priesthood around age 12, and that is deacon, teacher, priest. Mm-hmm. So you kind of go up through the levels of the Aaronic priesthood and each have their own duties and stuff. And that will be in the DNC, but sometimes those things are changed by current practice. And then there's the Melchizedek priesthood that you receive and that will be elder. And then you have high priests and typically high priest quorums in the LDS church are older men. Yeah. And, uh, and notice Hebrews, there's one great high priest, right? Yep. Yeah. They have high priests. Yep. Uh, in every stake. Yep. The LDS Church. So, <clears throat> I think it's probably helpful to say that uh, for a credo Christian who reads this passage of Scripture, the idea of everything that you just talked about doesn't even begin to cross our minds. No. This, this is a classic example of what we call eisegesis, where... You come up with your own theology, whatever you want it to be, and you read it into the text. And you start to interpret the text on the basis of wrong presuppositions instead of letting the text speak for itself. Uh, because as we read through this passage of Peter confessing the Christ, uh, we, we don't start building out this system of, uh, well, this proves the priesthood that we already believe in the way that LDS people are. Um, no, we would approach this text very differently. And it's important to jump into texts like these because this is one of those passages of scripture that has been a battleground within Christianity, uh, primarily because of the divide between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, you know, and this, this idea of, of who does hold the keys to the kingdom. Is there a succession of popes that began with Peter and was passed down from person to person, authority to authority? And of course, that's the claim of the Roman Catholic Church, is that there is an authority that was given to Peter here that Peter exclusively held, and that it was his responsibility apparently somehow to pass that on to someone else, because if somebody doesn't have the keys to the church, uh, and really when I say somebody, I mean someone, there's one person that ultimately holds these keys, right? Uh, and that would be the Pope within Roman Catholicism. If somebody doesn't have that authority, 
then uh, then you don't have you don't have a church effectively within that way of of thinking. And so this has been a very debated passage of scripture. And from a credo Christian perspective, there's some people that want to make the argument that Peter is not the rock. Uh, there's others that will say, well, Peter is the rock. Uh, there's some that that will say, you know, Peter did have a particular and special role to play. There's others that'll say, no, the important thing here is not Peter. It's the confession that he made. And uh, as you study this passage, you just start to realize the Greek verbiage, the, 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 the language in this passage is one of the most difficult grammatically to deal with in the entire Bible. And this is exactly what we keep saying in this, in this uh, podcast. Watch out for churches that take the least clear passages in the Bible and build their entire faith off of it, <laughs> right? Um, and, and who refuse yeah. to let Scripture interpret Scripture to say, okay, we, we know that this is not the most clear passage in the Bible, so let's bring in all of the rest of the Bible to help us understand how we ought to be thinking rightly about this passage. Or how not to think about it. Or how it. not to think about it, yeah. which is just as important, right? So what would we say, Skyler? What, what would be some of the points you'd want to point out? And then you know we can kind of just do some back and forth on notes of how we as credo Christians think through this passage. What are the things we think are really important uh, from the way that we believe to uh, to draw out um, from this passage of Scripture? Well, I mean, just to recap, some of it's going to be recap, right? Yep. The most important question for the Christian, and that's assuming the God of the Old Testament. So, assuming the God of the Old Testament and that the Old Testament are Scriptures. That's right. The most important question is who is Jesus? Yep. And if you look at all the uh, creeds and confessions that are seen in a positive way, that is the central question, Yep. Um, which is why we still confess them. That's right. Um, and he, I, I mean, once again, I, on, on Peter being the rock or not, I, I, once again, this is, there's debates on all sides. I think Peter is the rock in this yep. passage, but Agreed. I don't think that means he's the first Pope. That's right. Agreed. And I do think, here's one thing you yeah. don't, you don't see in this passage. You don't see any sort of succession no. encouraged and, from Peter. So if you are, again, interpreting this, even if we're going to say Peter is the rock that Jesus is going to build, build the church upon, we see that authority expanded uh, even into, into Matthew 18, uh, right? So, so yeah, Peter may have, according to this passage, a, a sort of unique role to play as a leader in the church. Yeah. But then you have Ephesians 2, which says that the the uh, church is built on the foundation of all of the apostles. Yeah. And so it's not that we're denying that there's apostolic authority, it's that we're denying that there's apostolic succession mm-hmm. that, that is needed to be passed on from generation to generation. So what we would point to as being one of the primary uh, keys in this, uh, in this uh, key, you know, yeah. no, no pun intended, <laughs> but what we would say to be one of the keys to understanding this passage is not just the role that Peter's going to play, but what is Jesus... What does Jesus encourage in Peter in this passage? He encourages Peter's confession. Mm-hmm. It's that the truth that Peter just articulated about who Christ is, is right. Yeah. And he's saying, Peter, you keep articulating that, and I'm going to build my church on that confession. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, that's the primary point that's being made. Peter is understanding who Jesus is. He's rightly articulating who Jesus is, and it's because of Jesus's, or it's because of Peter's proper articulation of Christ that 
Jesus is going to build his church off of that confession, and particularly the apostles rightly teaching that. And so uh, is there anything special about Peter um, in an ultimate sense, in, in almost this popal way of thinking? No, no absolutely not. Because Peter is subject to rebuke, right? Yeah. Paul rebukes Peter. In Galatians 2. Galatians 2, uh, and sternly rebukes Peter. Um, and yeah. then even the Jerusalem council. You know, Peter seems like he is subject to all of the apostles and their understanding of what the truth of the gospel is and how it ought to be articulated, right? Yeah, and he, has a, he is a kind of first among equals, but, I mean, sometimes he fills in for the 12. He's, he's a stand-in for all of them. And we see that even with this authority, right, in, in 18 chapter 18, all 12 are given the same authority. That's right. So, and I do think it's interesting also that in Peter's epistle, right, especially given the the stone language, listen to this. This is Peter in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, and there's more here, but just this at least. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Who's the living stone here, right? Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Who here? Is this just priesthood holders? This is to the church. Mm -hmm. And this is another thing that's just an interesting theme, right, is the new temple has this rock imagery. And where he says, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, and for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Apparently, that was just made up by Calvin in the 1500s. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, mm-hmm. a people for his own possession. Okay, so you can see even there the temple imagery about the church. And that, that's something that's ironic for their emphasis on this as Peter getting the keys tied to their priesthood. Well, interestingly enough, this thread of rocks and living stones and stuff is about the new temple and yeah. why we don't go back to the old temple. And by the way, the old temple wasn't like the LDS temples either. They didn't do <laughs> temple ceilings of families forever in the, in the Old Testament temple. So, so there's that. Also the keys, right? If you look at Revelation 118, who holds the keys of Hades, right? Of hell. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot... A lot here, but once again, as we covered in the Apostle passage, yeah, um, the Apostles have a unique authority. What do we have from them? Yeah. The Scriptures. But it's important to recognize that the Apostles' authority is under the authority of Christ and His Word. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not like Peter or any of the Apostles have the freedom to willy-nilly declare whatever they want about uh, Jesus, they need to be true in their confession of who Christ is. And if they veer from it, then uh, guess what happens? Well, uh, look in that in the passage right after this, uh, what you know, uh, 
Jesus is uh, have this great moment. It seems with Peter, like Peter, you're you're getting it. You're you know you're getting there. You, I'm going to build my church off of you. And then literally the next verse in verse 21 in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Here's Peter trying to rebuke Jesus for what he's saying. How's that going to go over for him? Oh, well, I just got the keys, Jesus. You handed me the keys. Apparently you don't have the keys anymore. So I'm going to rebuke you because you're saying things about having to go and die and suffer and all this stuff. Peter still did not have a full understanding of what Jesus had come to do. Because as soon as Jesus starts declaring the gospel, I didn't come to take over now. I came to die for the sins of my people. As soon as he starts declaring the weakness through which he's going to accomplish the redemption of his people, Peter starts rebuking Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then what does Jesus do? He turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Yep. Okay, this doesn't sound like a good pope at all. If, nope. if Jesus is calling Peter Satan now, you're a hindrance to me, for you are settling, you're setting your mind, you were not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Clearly, Peter doesn't have the authority to just declare whatever he wants to declare no. and make it true. He is under the authority of Christ, and he must rightly articulate the truth of the gospel in order to have any authority whatsoever. So what is the ultimate authority then? It's the declaration of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. right? It's the truth about him that even Peter himself is subject to. And so the authority for the church to bind and loose isn't based on some particular person in an office having the authority to do that. It's based on the the, gospel, the right belief and declaration of the gospel. And so as you see the, the church can continue to grow, it's by that word that the apostles bind or loose people, and the church as a whole then binds right. or loose people. It's by the truth of the scriptures mm-hmm. that we bind people's consciences, that we bind their their uh, their lives. Right, and even in Acts, right, when Peter is a key, a key, well, the rock, right, in terms of extending uh, missionary work to yeah. certain groups. Yep, it it's the spirit that acts first. It's mm-hmm. Peter receiving what God is already doing, yep, right? In Acts 2, Acts 8, and so on and so forth. So it's more about divine guidance than divine endorsement. It's not saying, here's this power, use mm-hmm. it as you will, and I'll That's recognize yeah. it. It's about, I. <laughs> he's God. God is the one who has the power. But he, it's his church. It's my church, Jesus says. That's Which, right. by the way, Israel of old, it's Yahweh's Israel. Oh, it's my church. Once again, the key feature being who this Jesus is. Yep. And then the church is a necessary component of that. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter being, you know, the first. And yet, yeah, you're right. Right then, then it goes and says, oh my gosh, you see the fragility of Peter right after that. Right when you think, oh wow, it's going to, you know, just have confidence in that gift. Have that internal subjective certainty based on what you did. All of a sudden, you see the, the frailty of man. This is not where it succeeds. It's not going to be because of Peter or you or me. That's right. It's going to be because the Spirit is at work. Yep. And he may use, you know, these fallen, broken images of him like you and me. But that's, it's the Spirit doing the work. Yeah. It's, not a, it's not a manly priesthood. Through the gospel. Yes. So it is only by the apostles... Mm-hmm. right confession of Christ that the church will be built. It's going to be built upon the proper confession of who Christ is, which is why we as credo Christians want to say again and again, 
having the right Jesus is everything. Yes. It's everything. I'll just give an example of this, uh, even what we're talking about with this message about the uh, the truth of who Jesus is being fundamental. There's another passage in Luke 11 where Jesus is rebuking the lawyers and the Pharisees and uh, all of these different religious people. And he says, therefore also the wisdom of God said, this is Jesus saying, I will send to them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this is him pronouncing a woe, like you killed the prophets, you killed the apostles, you don't want to hear the wisdom of God. And then he says, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. He says, woe to you lawyers, right? These religious people, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you entered those who were, and you hindered those who were, Entering, in other words, when you heard the the proclamation of of the kingdom, both in the prophets of old and from Jesus Himself, uh, you are you were seeking to bind people by removing the key of knowledge, the key of who Christ is. So, just listen to D. A. Carson commenting on this very quickly. He says clearly, then there by their approach to the scriptures, this is the lawyers. Jesus says that they are making it impossible for those who fall under the malign influences of their teaching to accept the new revelation in Jesus and to enter the kingdom. They take away the key to knowledge. So the key is knowing who Christ is, right? It's it's a right confession of Jesus. And then Carson writes, in contrast, Peter, on confessing Jesus as Messiah, is told he has received this confession by the Father's revelation and will be given the keys of the kingdom, i.e., by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, which we see in 4.23, which by revelation he is increasingly understanding. He will open the kingdom to many and shut it against many. Fulfillments of this in Acts are not found in passages like 15.10, but in those like 2.14-39 and 3.11-26, all in Matthew. So that by this means the Lord added to the church those who are being saved. We see that in Acts 24. Or otherwise put, Jesus was building his church. So it's by this bold proclamation of Christ that he is the Son of God that the church is going to be built. You've got to proclaim Jesus rightly or you're not building God's church. Right. Um, you got the wrong keys, right? Yeah. I um, I really want to contrast this Packer Holy Temple with ours. Um, but just really quick. They, they say in the seminary manual, you know, how can I gain a testimony of Jesus Christ? So they're going to give you an action plan, right? And they cite this Uchtdorf talk where he says, first you have to desire to believe, but it has to be real desire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, again, very different than ours. Second, search the scriptures, because the Book of Mormon has good advice for us here. Once again, even the Book of Mormon, when they say scripture, they don't mean the same thing that we do even on that. Yeah. Like, the Book of Mormon having good advice, we don't treat the Bible as if it just has good advice, you know? Um, third, do the will of God. So you got to obedience first. And then fourth, ponder, fast, and pray and he cites the same verses that they cite here in terms of Alma 5. And if you look at Alma 5, it's about knowing things for yourself. Knowing things for yourself. Now, there is a very limited way in which we wouldn't totally disagree with that, right? right. 
But it's, it, it really isn't. If you see the context, it's not what we mean. Like, if you look at Matthew eleven twenty seven, we already mentioned it earlier and we've mentioned it in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Only the Father knows the Son. To the degree to which we know Him, it's an act of dependence. Yeah. Not independence. Yep. Not self-reliance, but the triune God, total reliance on the triune God in His work. And even the creeds and confessions, right? Insofar as they're valid. Why? Because they're faithful to the revealed scriptures that mm-hmm. are the revealed Word of God. For us, even that one God created everything to the degree to which we have scientific truth. It's an act of dependence, yeah. not independence. Yeah, and I, so, I would yeah. say there is a there is a, a particular dependence upon special revelation, even in the mind and heart of the believer, which is why we have what we call prayers of illumination. So mm-hmm. when we approach the biblical text, we pray, God, by your spirit, open our eyes to understand the truth of your word. But that's not seeking after a feeling or or even a revelation that's detached from the text. It's as we study this, yes. show us who you are. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, I if I can just kind of go over some things that just really quickly, right? When they say he- revelation, whose? Whose revelation? Mm-hmm. I mean, once again, they don't define these terms, and it's very man-centered. What we see, even all of creation is revelation of God, and then God's special revelation in the scriptures, right? Testimony, but whose? We're relying on eyewitnesses of things like the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Their testimony, but as evidence and proof, not some subjective feeling by which we think we can know on one hand that the resurrection, which did happen, and on the other hand, some white Lamanites, or sorry, white Nephites that didn't. It, that stuff didn't happen. It's not historical. Um, well, no. Well, no, based on what? Like this quest within mm-hmm. or this reliance on without, without outside of ourselves, yeah. right? And, and once again, knowledge of the Son based on what? So it, it's, it, and of course, all around this, ignoring the fact that the church won't fail. So I, it, it is interesting, um, that we, we have a Gnostic text that kind of reminded me of this, where the, the idea of um, true Christianity being um, self-knowledge is divine knowledge. Anyway, I'll put some stuff in the footnotes about that. Now, what are they ultimately going to rely on? Why? What's the big picture? Notice the big picture isn't who Christ is in the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah. It's all about their temples. Yeah. Well, Packer's the Holy Temple. Here's the description. Boyd K. Packer being a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. This is a... Um, something that he wrote. In fact, it's a whole book, and, um, but he gave talks and stuff. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But the, notice this. In the temples, members of the church who make themselves eligible can participate in the most exalted of the redeeming ordinances that have been revealed to mankind. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes on to, to um, say this. This, to me, is a great example of the differences that we have Let's see. He does mention Peter. Okay. Temple work is a source of spiritual power. Sorry, I'm getting to it. Um, All right. Here's the conclusion. Our labors in the temple cover us with a shield and a protection. Notice, what covering are we looking for? I mean, even going back to the garden after sin, and one of my favorite chapters of the Old Testament, Zechariah 3, being clothed in the robes, right? The high priest. Mm -hmm. For them, it's their temple work. Uh, no work is a mo- a more of a protection to this church than temple work in the family history research that supports it. Notice, think how different that is. No work is more of a protection to this church 
than temple work in the family history research that supports it. Yep. What? What protects the Christ's real church? Mm. Is it anything we do? No, it's in spite of every, yeah. <laughs> in spite of all the wrong things we do. Yep. It's the spirit. I mean, even in this passage, it, we can't get to through the next section, as you pointed out, without recognizing when we get in the way, yep. we fail. Yep. But no, for them, is it the atonement? Is it the gospel? Is it Christ? No, it's temple work here. No work is more spiritually refining. No work we do gives us more power. No work, once again, power. No work requires a higher standard of righteousness. And then this is literally the ending. So come to the temple, come and claim your blessings. It is a sacred work. Hmm. Our labors in the temple cover us with a shield and a protection, both individually and as a people. So ultimately, where do they rest? Temples built with hands, based on keys that aren't biblical keys, based on the apostles, but they use their current apostles and personal revelation to get around everything those apostles taught. Yep. Based on what... Which, by the way... Can we just Please. note that there was a, a very clear articulation of that belief in general conference this past week? I can't. I can't, I'll have to. We'll, we'll have to look it up and leave it in the notes. But one of the one of the quorum of the seventy gave a talk saying that you cannot use uh, older revelation to trump new revelation. Right. <laughs> wow. It's like like basically don't use our older apostles and what they said. Yep. To go against what current apostles you follow the current prophet. That, yeah. was, that was the whole point of the talk. Theological French Revolution. Yeah. Erase the past, there, or what Mao said, there, there was no China. There only is China. Yep. Yep. But keep in mind, everybody, it's one of my pet peeves. We got to do a bonus episode sometime. My biggest pet peeves. My number one might be LDSism is a conservative religion. Yeah. It is absolutely not. No. That is Jacobinism. Yeah. So, it, it, yeah, anyway, it, it's based on a narrative that doesn't work, a dark, I mean, Bruce Armacocky calling it the Black Millennium. I mean, notice every single one of these pieces we see within the Bible as continuing into the church age mm-hmm. as relevant and definitive. Yeah. And definitive of what it means to truly follow Christ, the true Christ, the second person in Trinity, and the triumph God is revealed in Scripture. Yep. And every single one of these pieces they interpret centered on Joseph Smith and things that are absolutely debatable and disputable. Yep. Um, based on their personal revelation of who they feel this Jesus is. Yeah. It, it, you couldn't be more different. Yeah, that's good. Any last words? Just Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's good. We appreciate y'all joining us. Uh, like, subscribe share about our show and uh, leave us feedback if you would so please we would appreciate it thanks for listening we'll see you next time